Hey, it's Cameo, and welcome. Just like you, I wear many hats, and sometimes I feel overwhelmed by the demands of everyday life. And there was a time when I felt lost, stuck, and unsure of how or where to start the transformation that I needed. And that's why we're here, to share experiences, lessons, tools, and tips for shaking up your life and living for you. I'm glad you're here, so let's get into it. Hello and welcome to the Cameo Show. I'm your host, Cameo. We are joined by my husband and co-host, Greg Braun. And today we have a remarkable guest who has embarked on a journey that's both inspirational and deeply moving. She's the author of the newly released book, My Father's List, How Living My Dad's Dreams Set Me Free. Her name is Laura Carney, and her story is one of resilience, courage, and honoring the memory of a loved one in such a brave, extraordinary way. So Laura, thank you so much for being here with us and sharing your story. I'm so excited to have you here. Oh, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. We connected before you maybe even started writing the book, um, or we're just starting to write your book as a part of a networking group many years ago. And that's how I uh, started following you and following your journey. And so to see this come to fruition is really, really cool. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) And so I started reading it. I haven't gotten all the way through. So I'm so excited to be chatting with you directly. I feel like I'm getting a behind the scenes, personal uh, storytelling session that we can share with our listeners. So my my understanding and what I've gotten through so far is that your father was um, killed in a car accident and that you came across his bucket list and completed it in his honor. And that was a lot of adventuring 54, I think I saw in six years. And so I would love to dig into some of those and maybe start at the beginning with how you came across this list and how you were even inspired or decided to begin taking on the list yourself, if you don't mind starting there. Sure. Um, You know, it's it's funny. I, I really debated in that first, in the prologue of the book, whether I should write, I finished it or I decided to finish it <laughs> because it's like, I don't want to give it away that I actually did it, you know? Sure. But, but it's like, even though I did write, I decided to finish it. And I mean, you know, from the, you know, looking at the back of the book that I finished it, um, I have found that readers still tell me sometimes like, oh, I was really rooting for you. I didn't know if you were going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> like right. as they get through the last few chapters, because they feel like they're on the mission with me. Um, but so my father died when I was 25 years old. Um, I had actually just moved to New York for a magazine internship. And it was my first time uh, living away from home, um, you know, except for college. And uh, it was in a car crash with uh, a 17 year old who was making a phone call um, at a red light and she didn't see the red light after and just went right through it while on the phone. Um, And, you know, when it happened um, at first, I thought it was a drunk driver, you know, Mm. I think as you would. And I remember my brother was the one who called me and he said, no, it was in the middle of the afternoon. Um, And it was sort of like I was living in this very weird um, liminal space for a couple of weeks there. And then that sort of extended into a few months. And um, thank goodness, my my now husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, we had made this plan for him to move across the country to New York with me. Like we had actually met online that summer. So he wow. had come and visited me three times. And then he met my dad once. And then my dad died five days later. Oh my so gosh. 
we had this road trip planned and it was going to be this incredibly like adventurous, romantic trip across the country. And I was there in body, but I wasn't really there, you know, like now my life had taken a very different turn. Um, and I was only 25 and he was only 29 and the two of us were going to have to navigate that. Um, and you know, I had actually just gone through, I guess it was about seven years of therapy, different therapists. Um, as I was diagnosed with depression as a teenager and, um, that culminated in a hospital stay where they had to take me off of, um, just about every medication they had put me on. I had been put on like nine different medications at once at one point. And because of that, I was really um, avoidant of therapy and of therapists in general. So while I was in a situation where I definitely could have sought some kind of support for my dealing with this tragedy, I refused to do to do it because sure. <laughs> I thought, well, they're going to tell they're going to label me again. You know, like I was this very like rebellious kid. So um, I didn't do that. And uh, instead, I just sort of um, I just sort of focused on work. I focused on trying to have a life that was normal. Um, and and part of me was almost angry with my dad sometimes, even though it wasn't his fault that this had happened to him. I definitely had this feeling of like, OK, you guys got divorced when I was six and you moved out and I felt abandoned then. And now here I am at 25, finally starting my life and it's happening again. Mm-hmm. So even though it, like it totally wasn't his fault, I really did feel like I don't want to deal with this. That was the feeling I had. So I spent, I guess, about the next 10 years of my life just very focused on work, on climbing the ladder, so to speak, um, in New York. And by the time my husband proposed marriage, you know, uh, the way I like to say it is my life looked really great on paper. But there was something like very unresolved still mm-hmm. inside of me. I was still carrying around this resentment and and almost like the best way I can describe it is uh, a lot of my life for that decade had just been me trying to survive, you know, like me trying to live a life despite this thing that had happened. Like I'm going to live a good life anyway. And that doesn't really work because, you know, it's almost like the whole good vibes only movement that people have. It's like, but, but you're, you're, you can't just avoid like the feelings that you need to process that are very, at that point, were very deeply buried inside of me. Mm -hmm. So there was just something about my husband's proposal, which he did at Christmas. And so when I was a little kid, my dad used to always let me hang the star on the tree. And, you know, he would save it for me every time. And my husband knew that that was something that was really special to me. And when we first moved in together, we actually went out and got Christmas ornaments. And I I found a star that looked identical to the one that I had. So the way he proposed was he hid the ring underneath of the star so that when I put it on, it was funny because the star was like way too big for our little rinky dink, like artificial tree. So it would always be like a Charlie Brown tree, like the star would kind of flop over (laughs) And when he had the ring there for the first time, the star stayed. And I was so excited about the fact that the star stayed on. Like I wasn't, it wasn't computing. Like, and he's like, maybe there's something under it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) the whole reason it actually stayed on was because there was the ring was there. And I always, I love telling that story because I feel like it's such a great metaphor for our relationship. Um, Because, you know, obviously I said yes. (laughs) And afterward we we recognized you know i'm still carrying this anger from this thing that happened and i need to face it i I don't want to carry this into my marriage too and i need to do something about it and so i became an activist 
And that was almost like a happy accident because um, I worked for Good Housekeeping by then as a copy editor. And one day an article came across my desk and it was about distracted driving. And I had never really connected that with my dad's death. I had always thought of it as like, oh, God, you know, maybe he just was unlucky in life. And it was like this fluke thing that happened to him. But then when I saw uh, that this man's daughter had died because of someone on their phone, and I, I remembered um, the headline of the article, which said teen cited for talking on cell phone. I realized, oh, this happened to my family, too. Maybe I should help this man. And, you know, as a journalist, you're not really supposed to do that. <laughs> you're not supposed to, like, call anyone in articles, but something in me knew I needed to. So I did. And I waited a couple of days, actually, because I was so afraid because I think I think I just sort of knew, like, this is going to change my life when I do this. And then I did. And I went and I talked with him in a high school. Um, and I think that was really the beginning for me of finally being public with this thing that had happened. And I mean, I didn't even talk about it at work. Like I didn't talk about it with anybody. Sure. So to find, to be in front of people discussing this, this traumatic thing that had happened in my life, it was like, I was accepting it, like beginning to accept it a little mm -hmm. bit. And saying this was real, this happened to me. And then Joel, who was that's the name of the man who was in the article, his daughter was a 21-year-old journalism student oh. when she was killed. And he was the first person who actually said to me, you know, you're a journalist, like you're a writer, you're at a national level. Um, you should be writing about this. Mm -hmm. You know, like you're at you're in a space where it would be published, probably. I mean, I didn't, I was a copy editor, so I wasn't sure if it would. But the most amazing things started happening, which was every time I would pitch a story about this or about distracted driving, you know, anything connected to my dad's death, people would say yes. Like Runner's World would say yes. The Washington Post would say yes. And I was sitting there like, this is crazy. Like, I've There's been something trying to, to this. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've been trying to be a published writer for 10 years. And I just keep taking these jobs as a copy editor because for some reason my pitches don't land. And I'm not as interested in writing about things as I was when I was in college. Like I'm, I've almost lost that passion for it. And the reason I had lost the passion for it, I mean, I didn't actually lose the passion for it. What had happened was I had the biggest story of my life that I was supposed to tell, but I was too afraid to tell it. Mm -hmm. So until I told that story, I wasn't going to be able to move forward and, you know, write other things. So basically now that people are finally publishing things I have to say, I'm finally starting to recognize like, oh, this is the story I'm supposed to be telling. But I didn't know, I couldn't wrap my head around like, how can I tell this story so that people will actually listen? Right. I mean, beyond the editors of these publications, because to me, it was like, it's such a bummer. Like, this sure. is such a sad thing. And, you know, when I do these talks in high schools, I, I'm, I'm happy that I'm making an impact and I'm happy that they're great for these kids to be learning. But it seems to me there's somehow there's more to my dad's story than that day when he died. Right. You know, and six months after I got married, which, you know, when I did get married, I felt a little bit better about the fact that um, I had become an activist. Like I felt a little bit better about what had happened because I felt like, oh, at least I'm taking some action here. Like another woman won't have to feel this way walking down the aisle on her wedding day, because I've done something to try to help prevent that. Um, yes. So that felt good. And I, it felt a little bit less sad to me, but I was still crying while walking down the aisle because I missed my dad. Sure. Um, so 
six months later, uh, that was when my brother was about to get married too. And he was moving into his first house. And he, that's when he found my dad's bucket list. And my husband and I were up visiting him and, you know, they were actually planning on framing it and giving it to me as a gift for being in their bridal party, but they were just so excited about it that they, they needed to show it to me like on that visit. And there was something about the list. Uh, my dad had written at the top of it, things I would like to do in my lifetime. There's, I always love to, to mention that he underlined would like to, uh, because it was like he, in case anyone ever found this thing, you know, like, like don't confuse this with a to-do list. I didn't <laughs> you know, commit to are, this fully, but I would like to kind these of These are just vibe. experiences yeah. I want to have, you know, yes. like they're not obligations and, yes. and to find out he wrote it when he was 29 years old. And, you know, this wasn't a man who was 45 and thinking about his impending, you know, death. It was a man who was 29 and he was anticipating how wonderful he wanted his life to be. Ambitious and a big dream list, really. Yeah. And it wasn't like the term bucket list didn't exist yet. So I don't think he would have even been thinking about his death. I think he was just thinking about, you know, he was a big believer in um, like law of attraction and intentional living. And I think he just felt if I write down the things I want to do, then this brings it one step closer to actually happening. Yeah. And he just, he read a lot of books about that, which I didn't even know until recently. Like I had no idea. He, he loved Napoleon Hill and he loved these like big thinkers. Um, so yeah, so that's what it was. And to see that it, it just like, it just lit me up because I remembered who he was as a person. And I remembered the kind of just the big dreamer that he was and that he wouldn't have ever been bogged down by some of the stuff I was getting bogged down by at that point. Because like after my wedding, I went into this like existential depression of, oh, what am I supposed to do now? You know, like everyone's telling me now you guys need to buy a house. Now you have to have kids. Now you have to do this. Now you have to do that. And I was thinking, God, at least I got the wedding done. (laughs) Isn't that yeah, let me people? enjoy this moment. Right. <laughs> but I was beginning to recognize like, okay, as a woman of a certain age, people are looking at me and thinking like, well, you know, why isn't she doing this? Is she normal? Like, like I got very invested in that. And, and it was, it felt something felt off to me about it because here I was like this person who had lived sort of a unique life up to that point. Like I, I made myself move to New York when I was 25. I got a job in magazines. My dad had died in this really strange, like traumatic way. Um, you know, my husband, I, we waited 10 years before he proposed. Like, I just, I sort of feel like nothing about my life has been normal. So why all of a sudden do I feel this pressure to be normal? like to fit in. And I I just remembered who my dad was and how he never cared about what people thought. And he was such a unique person. So to find the list exactly when I did and make the choice to embark on it, you know, it really wasn't, it wasn't a situation where I'm like this dutiful daughter who always was like a daddy's girl. Like that wasn't what it was at all. I actually thought I was much more like my mom. It was more, I need to find a way to do something about distracted driving. I need to find a way that's positive to do that. And I need to honor this person who I feel was really influential in my life, but it's almost like he just vanished one day. And then we didn't really talk about him again. 
So that's what it was about for me. But then there was also this other element of he was very creative and he was a free spirit. And if I do this, this could be my doom, (laughs) you know, like like this could, this could like be, be, this could really send my life off track and be awful for me because I was so afraid of how, how much of an adventurous person he was. I had no idea that what was actually going to happen was these list items, a lot of them were not going to be as challenging as I thought. Um, There would be parts of me that would come to the surface that I didn't know were there. Uh, I would remember lessons he had given me as a kid that were actually almost like they had trained me to do the different things. And I was actually almost, you know, almost like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Like I had it in me the whole time, but I was repressing it because I was so afraid of being my authentic self. Right. That gives me chills up and down (laughs) everywhere. It's so beautiful that you've taken this tragedy and this moment of grief and confusion that then stimulates often this anger response that you were describing in us, uh, especially when we don't address the feelings that we have and we do try to just push them to the side and and continue on um, as it sounds like you did for for quite some time. Yeah, Um, It's so beautiful that you were able to take this situation and make it a mission and make it something where you became an activist for this distracted driving to bring it to the surface and say, Hey, this is real. And this, this isn't just like, Oh, put your phone down. Don't text and drive. This is like something that impacts and changes the trajectory of people's lives in a split second, pay attention. And that the fact that you were able to do that, I think is so selfless and also so brave. And then the fact that, you know, we're just getting to the list and we haven't even got into all of the adventuring, but like the fact that you were able to recognize that about yourself in the way that you described of saying, you know, these are things that I had in me all, all along. These are things that in fact, he may have prepared me for and taught me that now I, I have confidence and the ability to face them. Um, would it be accurate to say maybe because they weren't necessarily your, your goals at the time? They were. Yeah. I mean, some of them were, you know, right. And have a few novels published. I wanted to write a book. Um, The tennis list item, it was uh, beat a number one seed in a tennis tournament. I don't know that I wanted to do that, but I did like tennis. You know, there's once in a while, there'd be things that I enjoyed and wanted to do myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I'm through the book enough to, to have been through a few of the adventures with you. Um, the first one, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, is the one of running 10 miles straight. Like you were already running. You just maybe hadn't completed all together. So this was a situation where you took this list item and really made it an opportunity to step up for yourself in a way that maybe you hadn't been, uh, believing in fully at that point in yourself to do those things. I I don't want to paraphrase that incorrectly, but no, no, that's right. I mean, but isn't it funny that I didn't become a runner until I was 35 and I remember I would go to the gym in my building at work and I would, I just had this distinct feeling that my dad was proud of me because I was running and I couldn't place why. And this, like I said, this was like before we found the list and you know, I had never considered myself an athlete. Not really. You know, I played basketball up until high school. Um, I played tennis, but you know, then I was like a marching band nerd, <laughs> you know, like I just, I wasn't like someone, I was an academic. I didn't consider my, and certainly not in my twenties. And, 
uh, you know, I guess I was getting to an age at 35 where my peers were sort of like, eh, you know, we don't, we don't really want to do happy hour. We want to go work out, <laughs> you know, like we want to yeah, do things that are, that are good for us. And I really only started running just to make friends at my new job. Um, cause these people were like running marathons, you know? Um, but that's another one of those examples of how life was sort of preparing me for this adventure before I even knew what it was. Um, right. And I think that happens a lot. I think, you know, cause people are always asking me, um, you know, how did you know the list was your purpose or like, how do you, like, how does a person figure out what they're here for? Like what their purpose is. And one of the things I like to tell people is that you're already preparing for the moment when it finds you mm-hmm. like that's, that's happening to you every day. And you can make choices where basically you're just committing to do things that you love to do, that you feel called to do, but they seem impractical, you know, mm-hmm. just whatever it is that 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 is for you or things where you're just strengthening yourself and improving yourself. And you don't really know why you're committing so much time to this self-improvement thing. But ev- the thing that happens is that every time you keep a commitment to yourself, with that stuff, you're actually making yourself more prepared for that day when you find your list, you know, for the, like, I know now that when that list showed up, I was ready. Like I had been running for a couple of years. The first list item ended up being run 10 miles straight for me. Cause I had just run the New York marathon the year before. So running 10 miles, like just with no walking at all, as part of the LA marathon made sense. Like I had already, I had already signed up for the LA marathon. Yeah. And we found the list. I'm like, oh yeah, that can do this. Um, so to be in a place where I could have confidence about so many of those items because I had already become an endurance athlete. Like, I don't think there's anything about that that was a coincidence. Yeah. I love that so much too. Um we talk a lot about that, that if we're paying attention, often there are signs, there are serendipitous moments, there are things that you've been preparing for to be ready. You just aren't quite sure what it is. And then one day it all makes sense. It all connects. There's this book um, called Big Magic. Oh, yeah. Have you read that one? It's uh, My husband has. He quotes from it all the time. (laughs) It's so great. I read it very quickly. It just is so warm and so relatable in that way of if you're paying attention to the universe and the signs, you'll it's all right in front of you. Just the idea being that if we're open, there's got to be this openness to being ready to accept whatever is there for us. And so again, you've taken a situation that was difficult. I mean, uh, difficult is like an understatement. I don't even, I can't even imagine um, how I would feel or or what that might feel with, feel like, but you've taken this situation and found a way to make it make it beautiful, to make it positive, to make it have purpose and make your father's life have purpose after he already was, you know, alive and fulfilling his own purpose. Like you've taken that to, to the next level in a way that has impacted so many people. I'm curious when you found the list, how did you decide that you wanted to do that? Like some of the list items you were just describing about the running, like this makes sense. And this is all in alignment. And some of them aren't that crazy, but did you decide right then, like, I'm going to do all of them. I'm doing this. Yeah. It wasn't a, well, I'll do a few and then maybe I'll complete some of the other ones. It was like, I'm completing this whole thing all right out. Yeah. Right I mean, there day. was, yeah, there was no logic. <laughs> there was no, like, let me think about it. It was, it was uh, like a, a light bulb moment 
um, similar to, you know, when I got my internship in New York, I knew it was only going to be $10 a day. There was no college credit because I'd already finished college at that point. Um, and I had, I don't know, maybe a thousand dollars in my bank account. And it was a crazy decision to say, yes, this is what I'm doing. But, but it was like, I knew this was supposed to be my life. Mm -hmm. So I was going to do that. When I met my husband, we met online and I saw his picture and I saw his eyes for the first time. And it was like, this is like, I remember when he called me and I heard him say hello. It was like, this is the, I know this voice. I know these eyes, you know, this is going to be my life is this Mm -hmm. person. And uh, when he proposed, it was the same thing. It was like, who knows what the future holds for us. And yet I know it's going to be with you. Um, And the list was like that. It was like, this is a moment that's really important in my life. And I need, like, I just want to do this like, Mm -hmm. like this. And also this was answering so many problems in a way, because I felt like my dad's spirit had left it right there at that moment in time on purpose for me to find it right then. Because I had, I think I might've glanced at it when I was 25 by accident. Okay. I think mm-hmm. I, I think that was what it was that I saw. Cause I do remember seeing talk with the president written down somewhere on something. <laughs> and, yeah. But and just being, more of like a seeing it and moving on, like not giving it. Well, too much yeah, energy. I could have sat there and realized what it was and read the whole thing. Cause I think I remember being in my mom's basement and like seeing that and thinking like, oh my God, how embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> You know, like, like what was wrong with him that this is what he wanted to do? You know, like, like, like how about, you know, like, like other practical concerns in his life that he could have been thinking about instead of this. Like, I'm sure that I, I don't know that that's what it was, but it was something he made lots of lists. So it could have been a different one, <laughs> Sure, but um, that would have been my attitude then. But by the time I was 38, which is how old I was when my brother gave it to me, Um, I had lived enough life to know that um, you just, you know, you can't be embarrassed about the things that you want to do, you know, like, like you have to just go for it. And and I think I was getting to a place in my life where people are like, you know, like, I don't care (laughs) what people think anymore. Oh, right. All that pressure of the shoulds that you were referencing, like, well, you're married now, so you should do this next and you should do that next. And it's like, I don't, you don't get to dictate what I should be doing. Like I appreciate your concern. And I know that this is kind of the normal trajectory, but that's not how I'm choosing to, to live my life. And so, you know, I, I think that then there's that courage that comes up when you're like, I, I, you said rebellious, I'm going to kind of rebel against the norm and I'm going to live life the way that I want to. And, and then being inspired by that list to draw from that energy from your dad is, is pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I even knew that, that I was doing that though. I just knew that I couldn't fit where, where I was supposed to fit. Like I couldn't, I couldn't be what I didn't have this strong desire to settle down quote unquote, that everybody kept telling me I was supposed to be like, like, this is the natural thing that happens to you after you get married. Like then that's what you want to do. And I just kept thinking like, what's wrong with me? Like I just, it was a desperation of, I don't fit. And I'm still kind of obsessed about this thing that happened to my family that feels unresolved. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's just like where I was. Um, And so I really think what I didn't even understand yet, like this list is going to lead me down a path where I'm being my authentic self. Cause I didn't know what that was yet. Um, I just knew that I just knew that I needed to do something that would honor him. And Mm -hmm. 
in I think there was something about making that choice to just just that word, right? Like just to honor someone. Mm. That was the really unusual thing that I was doing. Like no matter what it was, and no matter how long it was going to take and how complicated it might be. Um like it's sort of like how often do we do that? Right. Like how often are we making choices in our lives where it's completely guided by honoring someone, right. whether that's your father who has passed away or it's yourself. Right. And I think there's just something about that word that when that's now your driving force, um, you're going to approach your life a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. You're going to value it in a different way. Um, it's going to stop being this thing where it's like, and I don't know that this is everybody's experience, but my experience at that stage in my life was I was trying to survive a variety of things that had been somewhat traumatic for me in my 20s. And I survived them by hiding them yeah, um, and by focusing on how I was perceived by other people or by compensating for them. And there's nothing about living like that that is honoring who I am. <laughs> right. Absolutely. You know what I mean? I do. And I feel like it's so relatable because I feel like regardless of the circumstance, I feel like so many people find themselves there, not Mm -hmm. sure how to honor themselves because they're bogged down by all of the things that they should be doing or all of the surviving that they need to do and all of the choices that they make need to make just to do that, that you wake up one day and you go, well, wait a second, who am I? And, and I realize now that I've been pushing this to the side and not dealing with it. And it's, it's inhibited my ability to live my life to its fullest potential because it's formed and shaped every decision that I've made from that moment forward. So I I think it's so relatable. And what you said completely makes sense. You've, you've, you're at this point now at at this stage at 38, where you're like, I'm ready to embrace who I am. And I don't know what that means. And I'm not sure what that looks like, but I feel like what you're saying is you found this list and it gave you a little bit of guidance, even though it wasn't necessarily meant to, it just kind of, it was inherent knowing is what I hear you say, like with your husband, when you met online and, and yep. with moving to New York, it was like, I, I just know, I don't know what the result will be. And I don't really care. I just know that this is something that I need to do. So, yeah. And intuition. We, I mean, our intuition is a powerful guide. Yep. And back to that paying attention, if if you're paying attention to what's being presented to you in a way that can en- enrich your life and enrich who you are as a person, it's all right there. You've all been, you've been preparing for it the whole time. Yeah. I mean, I, I read um, one of the books I read when I was really uh, soon after my father died, which <laughs> in that time period, I became weirdly fixated on astrology. <laughs> so okay. I did a lot of that. And I think it was because it was like totally complex and probably didn't mean anything. So it was like a great way to get my mind off of what was happening. But besides that, I also read some really good books. And one of the books I read in that time was The Alchemist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what they say in The Alchemist is uh, when you go after your heart's desire, all the universe supports you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they talk about the like, uh, I'm probably going to brutalize his name, but um, Paulo Coelho, the author, like he talks about looking for omens, you know, and how they're always all around you. So I think that that and also there's something about the fact that I chose to stay in New York. You know, I could have gone back to Delaware and been like, OK, well, this was fun, but now I need to go live my real life. And instead I had met this man who was like, no, you can't do that. Like you moved here for your dream and your dad would not want you to give up on your dreams. You have to stay here. So that, that helped a lot too. 
because I was choosing to move forward, um, even though it had now become profoundly more difficult for me. Yeah. Um, so I think just that one choice was made a, ended up making a huge difference in my life because I was having agency, even though I felt like I was now a victim of something. Um, and I don't think I even really got it until maybe six or seven months in to doing the list that there were signs showing up and that there was some kind of divine intervention happening because one of the list items was talk with the president. And we ended up doing that with Jimmy Carter because someone, I think I was doing an interview on Inside Edition and someone emailed me and they said, you know, he teaches Sunday school every Sunday of the year still, if like if any president will do. And then I realized, oh, he was president in 1978 when my dad wrote the list. So that's Ooh. sort of perfect. Yeah. That like serendipitous divine intervention, you call it like, yeah, it's like the universe showed up and said, here's the right president, or maybe right isn't the right word, but here's the president that's most fitting for this moment. Right. And that started happening with all of the list items. Like I would go into each one thinking I knew what it was about and here's what it's going to be. And then it would end up being about something else completely like, you know, run 10 miles straight. The first one I did I thought that was going to be about, you know, my athletic prowess or or something or like, oh, look, she could do it. And what it actually was about was teamwork because my friend who had never been a runner before agreed to run that marathon with me and we did it relay style. And I got to watch her develop into a runner over like this beautiful three month period and watch her dazzle herself and do things she never thought she could do before. And to have that feeling of like, oh, was I part of this? That's really cool. Like, that that ended up being what that was about because that's what I needed at that time. Yes. I needed this example of this is what it looks like when you let somebody help you, you yes. know. Um, and then with the president one, uh, we went down there with almost no guarantee that I was going to be able to check that off and talk with him. Um, I had a friend who knew someone who could who could ensure that we would get a seat in the church because sometimes he would have like hundreds, like 500 people. And you'd have to go and sit in a separate room and watch on like a big screen TV or something. Yeah. Um, and I was like, no, that can't happen because I have to actually be in his proximity. <laughs> right. Um, so I got someone to guarantee that, but nothing, you know, nothing that ensured that I was going to have a conversation with him. And we got down there and this had been like, so we were in Georgia and that was like the one place of everything on the list that I had evidence that my dad had actually been there because my mom took him there. Um, to show him her grad school because she went to University of Georgia to get her master's. So I had these incredible pictures of the two of them standing on top of Stone Mountain. And my dad was like sticking his fist out, like all triumphantly. So I was really trying to persuade my husband, like, we have to climb this, <laughs> you know, yeah. like we have to recreate the pictures. And poor Stephen had been awake since like five o'clock that morning. He <laughs> was really tired and really didn't want to do it. But then I ended up convincing him. And because he did that with me, we ended up at the hotel at like 11 o'clock at night. And it was just at the exact moment we were checking in at exa the exact moment that uh, Jimmy Carter's biographer was checking in. <sighs> and we got into a conversation with him and I had been binging like everything Jimmy Carter for about two weeks at that point. So I knew enough that I could talk about him like somewhat intelligently with this man who like it had been his hero since he was 12 years old. Um, so we ended up befriending him. We talked to him for like two hours in the park, just in the parking lot, like in front of our cars. 
And then the rest of the weekend was just almost like uh, serendipitous because then Art showed up uh, downtown the next day at the same time we did. Um, he was asking me all these questions, like if he could sign anything for you, what would it be? And don't you think he knows you're here already? And I'm like, who is this guy? Um, <laughs> so by the time we got to the church and then Jimmy Carter was sitting right in front of us, you know, and then I got to go up and and I had prepared in my head a couple of sentences I was going to say. I felt better knowing that we had met this man because, I mean, we saw him like before the, the lesson even started. We saw him through the crack of the door back there talking to the president. Like, OK, this guy wasn't just like messing with us. Like he he's really real. he's yeah. really friends he's with him. Yeah. You know, and um. To get to have those few sentences with him and have it also be his dream. You know, this is a person who's helping me to do this because he was he's like, I was once in your shoes. It was so meaningful. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, even the the lesson itself, I was in a position at that point in time where I had just gotten an agent for turning this into a book. Like it was very early, but I already had one. And mm -hmm. I was really conflicted about this is my my family you know like this is personal is this okay for me to be doing this and you know I'm, I don't want to be someone who's like revealing things about my family and my parents divorce or anything else I knew my dad didn't care because you know he had lived his life and I really believed at that point that he was helping me and guiding me but I mean there were living people who were going to be in this right. and during that Sunday school lesson uh Jimmy Carter was basically, and he was like 93 doing this, by the way. Um, but he was telling us that when you're born, uh, you have a duty to shape your life. And I'd never heard anyone describe it that way before. Like, this is your responsibility. Like, you've been given life. So you need to decide what you're going to do with it. Um, what kind of person are you going to be? Are you going to be a person who holds grudges? Or are you going to be a person who forgives? You know, are you going to be a person who resents? Or are you going to be a person who shows compassion to people? And then he started saying how as you move through your life, you know, it could feel daunting, but you don't have to be afraid because you have someone helping you all the time. And he said, you know, and it's not, it's not your parents, even though they might like to tell you how to live, you know, and you, you can't tell your parents how to live either, you know, and it, it's not um, your spouse and, and you can't, you can't control what your spouse's life is going to be either. And he said, basically like that one influences God mm -hmm. and God is with you all the time. And he knows everything and he can do anything. So if you're going to have a partner, like what better partner could there be than you, this, this force that created you, that loves you, um, you know, that, that, that basically can help make anything happen. And I hadn't been like very religious up to that point, but there was just something very, there was something so spiritually profound to me about that idea mm -hmm. that I'm not here alone. You know, like, like I was created with like by love and with love. And I'm meant to also live my life that way. And I have guidance. I have, you know, almost like I have free will. So I'm making my own choices, but there's also a little bit of destiny involved mm -hmm. and I have help. So I might think, okay, running 10 miles means this, but it actually is a decision I have to make so I can put myself in the right place at the right time so that God can teach me something. Sure. Because that was what I actually needed. I just had to be willing to cooperate. Right. And, you know, you don't have to be religious to have that spiritual connection. You can, it doesn't have to be 
one God isn't the same, you know, and, and we keep referencing the universe and or source or, you know, just some higher power that's with you, whatever that means to whoever is is listening or involved in the conversation. I think just the idea that if you're open to this, it makes those decisions that you were talking about, about how do I present this without exposing my family members or feeling, you know, any type of guilt or, or trauma around that. It, it, it gives you that guidance that you just back to that inherent knowing it's like this higher power that's saying, no, this is your purpose. Like you get to decide. Absolutely. You get to take action, but you also have support. And you also have the idea that there will be lessons along the way that confirm that and that make you feel stronger in your conviction about what you're doing and the message and the delivery and the approach, which I think is just so amazing. It's when we're closed off that it gets tricky, right? Because we, Greg and I have been talking about this a lot recently, like we're go-getters. We like to, to, you know, do, do a lot of different things that are adventurous and courageous and big dreamers. But I also have this little bit inside of me that likes to try to control all of that. So not necessarily like focus on the finish line, enjoy the process, but also like kind of control it as it goes along. And sometimes that gets me in trouble. If I just relax and allow things, often they present themselves in a way that's so much better and so much greater for me. And maybe that's the lesson for me in that moment is like, Hey, let go, like just relax and let things happen and pay attention and everything will be beautiful. Sounds like that you know, kind of bombed that fear or that concern that maybe you were having about talking about your family or talking about your personal life, even in that way too. So, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, what it was, was I started to develop a trust mm-hmm. in myself as a writer. And, you know, and my husband would be saying that too, right? Like he would be like, no, you know who you are. He'd be like, you have more integrity than anyone I've ever met. Like, you know, you have a big heart. You're not going to, hurt anybody. Like you're going to, you're going to do the right thing. So why can't you see that in yourself? And, you know, I don't, I don't think um, society necessarily conditions us to trust ourselves. I think instead it's, it's more like you need to be this, that, or the other thing to even be considered acceptable as a person or, or normal. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, why are we going for ordinary all the time? We could be going for extraordinary. Like we could just be surrendering into the wonderful beings we are and we were each one of us was built the way that we were for a reason and and it's not so that we could use our gifts to try to show up other people it's so that we could use them to help other people yes you know that and i just intentionality behind your message behind your mission behind everything that you were writing that could be scary to talk about because it's personal the intentionality wasn't to hurt anyone it was to help people it was to share what you had experienced i think that's uh you know, I, I feel like people are afraid to be vulnerable in that way. And if you can break out outside of that, as you're referencing, and as your husband supported you to do and said, you're, you have so much integrity, you have to do this. It, it frees you. It's so freeing in a way that you just maybe wouldn't expect. Yeah. I mean, Carolyn Mace is a big influence for me. Um, and she always says that she always says the first step is trusting yourself mm-hmm. because if you can trust yourself, then now you're moving into a place where you can trust other people. Um, and I really, I needed to do that in order to get this list done 
I needed to be in a space where I could trust other people and and allow, you know, I always say 54 people. I'm, I, I know it was much more than that because I think my acknowledgements in my book have like 600 people, <laughs> but <laughs> but like I had to get to a space where I would allow people in yeah. to this experience and, and help me and open my heart to connect with them. And that was what I'd been missing for 10 years because yes. I became so afraid of losing somebody else, you know? Yes. Um, so that was healing me, even though it was in a, almost like a roundabout way. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't directly with my dad's death. It wasn't in a literal way. It was just, I'm going to let people help me and let them in in a, in a different thing. Um, so I think that it really was the first step. And then once you get to a space where, okay, not only do I trust myself, I can figure things out if they get difficult. I, I believe in myself. Now you're learning to trust other people and believe in them them and you're you're spreading that energy so that they're able to do things they didn't know were possible because yes. you're able to 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 invest in other people better because you've invested in yourself first and then i think that's when you get to a point where you're like oh there's something happening here that's so much bigger than yes. me like that i'm actually part of and we're all part of and you know my priority with my life is to do what i'm here to do and to contribute to that. It's not, what do I get? You know, it's not like, how do I seem? How do I come across? Am, do, am I valuable? You know, I'm valuable just because I was born. Yes. 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 Say that again. You know, it's <laughs> like, you, you're, you're exactly right. Like we aren't really taught to trust ourselves or to focus on that. We aren't taught to trust other people. We're taught to be, uh, con- I mean, that's the American pretty, way. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it, you you just really don't know how to take people what they say for face value or not. Is it, or am I being manipulated? Am I being misled? And you know, I, I'm enough. I I am valuable just because I was born is such a powerful statement. So simple, but so powerful because it has so much punch and so much meaning. And I again just keep going back to this idea that you had something that was so traumatic happened that you've been able to turn into this beautiful story of being about more than you. When most people, I, you know, I shouldn't say most people again, another generalized statement, but it's, it would be difficult. I think for a lot of people to, to do that instead of staying in that almost depressed state or victim mentality, you've shared with me um, just briefly in personal conversation that through your depression and and you started the the episode here talking about the medications but you shared with me also that you have been sober now for how many years um 8 congratulations thank we, you <laughs> we also are in that 8 to 9 year period of time where we have been uh, alcohol free and i can't even begin to explain what that feels like to most people the freedom and the trust that that in and of itself has built for us as individuals. And I'm sure you would agree with that. For me, it wasn't a conscious decision. It was just something that I was like, I'm not going to drink today. And then I'm not going to drink tomorrow. How did that look for you when you, you know, you were off of your medications and helped me through that, you know, timeline, but what did that look like for you in that decision? Um, yeah, I mean, it was a medical thing for me, like, I don't want to mislead any of your listeners into thinking like, oh, I was struggling with, with, I was drinking, you know, in a way that was, that was unhealthy for me. Yeah. Yeah, That's not, that's not what I was doing. What, What it became for me was that 
I think my metabolism changed at a certain age and I had been on antidepressants since I guess the age of 17. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was now on one that worked really well for me. Like I had finally, after that whole, you know, my mom went through hell taking me to therapists, which I did write about in the book. Um, and that was hard to write about. It wasn't, it wasn't nice to revisit that time, but I also knew that I needed to, because I needed my reader to understand the humanness, you know, in my father and in me. Um, and, and why I had some of the mistaken beliefs about myself that I had, like, I thought because of doctors I'd seen when I was 19, that, you know, I needed to live a life that was limited and, and didn't have too much stress in it. You know, like, like I needed to be, basically I needed to be afraid of my depression and I needed to be doing too much. You're causing this for yourself. Managing triggers at all times. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't know if kids are still being taught that, but it doesn't, it's not a real, real growth conducive <laughs> attitude towards life. Sure. When you're being taught, oh, you have a, an illness, you have to be afraid of yourself all the time. Yeah. Um, and basically with, with alcohol, you know, no one ever really said to me when I was about 21, like, Hey, you probably are not someone who should be drinking, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you have depression and alcohol is a depressant and that's not going to make you feel better. <laughs> it's not going to help. I mean, that's yeah, not, I mean, I yeah. was growing up at, you know, a, a good school, but also a party school. And that, that was, that was the culture. That's what everybody did. And Absolutely. I wonder sometimes now, like all those, you know, the, by the time I was on nine different drugs at once, I was 23. So it's like, and, and I remember very clearly still going to parties and still, still like binge drinking with people. And like, how is that helping you? Like there, there was some weird disconnect going on there. But, you know, as I went through my twenties and my early thirties, I still was a social drinker. And like I said, I think I just got to an age where my, my metabolism changed. And for some reason, the way I was now processing, uh, the, the small dose of antidepressant I still took, um, it, it just started interfering whenever I would drink, which mm-hmm. was not often, but sometimes the, when I would really notice it would be like, we had gone to a wedding and the next, like I had maybe four drinks that night and the next day I would be very irritable. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like I was in withdrawal from my medication and, and I was really a bear to be around, um, would just start fights about nothing for no reason. And after this had happened enough times, you know, my husband was like, okay, enough, <laughs> you know, cause he was on the receiving end of it mostly. And I'm right. sure there was an element there too, of this grief that I had, that was unresolved for me. Mm-hmm. And, oh, we had just gone to a wedding, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm seeing someone else move forward in their lives in a way that I would like to be doing. And I'm frustrated by, um, so eventually he just said, look, either the medicine goes or the drinking goes, it has yeah. to be one or the other. We can't keep doing this. And I, felt like, well, I don't want to go back to that space where I'm 23 and can't find the right drug. This works. So how about the drinking goes? So it really was like almost this happy accident in a way that here I was at 35 and I'm making this choice. I'm just never going to drink alcohol again. But it opened up my life to this level of joy that I couldn't recall experiencing since I was 20. Yeah. You know, since I was in college, I mean, immediately I signed up for an art, like a figure painting class. And I had been an art major before I switched to journalism. And I would go to this class every Friday night after work. And, you know, I wasn't doing happy hour anymore. I like I didn't have any 
uh, motivation to go to a bar and drink with anyone. I'm just going to my class and I'm going to do my figure painting. And it was amazing how much happier I (laughs) got all of a sudden. Like, like, and this isn't even something that like I ended up getting the degree in. And like, it isn't necessarily on my career path anymore. It's just a part of me I left behind. That's really important to who I am. And now I have the room, I have the time, I have the space and energy to actually do it. And I really think now that that was like an important ingredient for when we found the list and I started doing it a few years later, or when I became a runner, because that's another part of why I became a runner. Cause now I have all this free time yes. that I didn't have when I was like, okay, work hard, play hard. You know, that's my life. Yep. It doesn't have to be like anyone who's listening right now, who's in your early thirties, like your life does not have to be work hard, play hard. Like I read, I think it was the New York times. I read an article the other day that was saying that millennials don't know what hobbies are or something <laughs> like they, 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 they've been so conditioned by society and maybe their parents to achieve and they get to a space in their lives where, okay, I have the job and I'm, I'm successful. Um, and now when I'm with my friends, you know, maybe they're drinking, who knows what they're doing, but it's like that same work hard, play hard mentality. And the concept of doing anything outside of that is very it's so foreign that they don't even know what they like. Yes. Again, very relatable. And I feel like I found myself there 10 years ago, since you bring that to the surface where like it was, it was, everything was about the finish line back then. I said earlier, it's no longer about the finish line. It's about the process. I just know who I am in a way that I didn't then. And so everything was around, what can I do to accomplish things? What can I do to be this? And now it's like, I'm just me. And these are the things that I love doing. And I'm just trying to do them all while I'm able and while I have time. And it's a completely different mindset. And I really appreciate you sharing that piece of you, uh, that personal part of this sobriety journey, because I think it's really important what you said, like you, you weren't an alcoholic, you weren't engaging in destructive over drinking, binge drinking behavior. You just realize, like, I've outgrown alcohol. It doesn't serve me in the way that, you know, maybe it did when I was 20 and I was focused on that part of my life. And it's not from a space of judgment, it's really just from a place of awareness. So the fact that you shared that, I think, is a really important message around this conversation of sobriety is that it wasn't because you were broken, it wasn't because you had a horrible habit or an illness or a dependency on alcohol. It was, a conscious choice of I'm a better version of me without it. And however that began for you with the medication is only because you were open to being aware of that conscious choice, you know, and having a supportive spouse to be there for you and be like, Hey, something's got to give here. And I think we need to have this conversation is such an integral part of that as well. So thank you for sharing that. I don't think that gets talked about enough. I think my body decided before before my, my soul did. And I, and I, I view it as like, what an awesome thing that my body decided that because my life is improved tenfold that now that alcohol isn't part of it. I mean, that's in no way me saying to people who enjoy a casual drink once in a while, like, Oh, you know, that's wrong. Or or you're missing out on having a great life by doing that. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Um, I'm just saying that for me, this was the path I needed to take. Um, I needed to not ever drink again um, because my depression and what I was about to do with my life didn't have room for it. Um, And, you know, I I think it almost 
it also almost was the first step towards my new version of activism. Because when I first was learning how to be a safe driving activist, I was just sort of copying what I saw other people doing, you know, which was tell people about what happened to your loved one, um, tell them why they shouldn't be doing this, and then give some education about it, about what it does to your brain, et cetera, et cetera. And that never really felt like a good fit for me because I don't tend to ch make changes to my life because someone is is scaring me about it and telling me, oh, don't do this, 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 and this, or here's this horrible thing that's going to happen. You know, like what tends to affect me personally is if I see someone living a life where they seem happy and, and, and I think, well, what's their secret? You know, like I want to be more like that. They must be doing something. And if they're doing something that's very different from what I'm doing, then I might be inclined to try to adopt some of those habits. Like it's more of like an inspirational way of change. Yes. And, you know, I think a very early step of that for me was making the choice to do something that might have me in social situations where people are questioning what I'm doing. Like, oh, why aren't you drinking? You know, it's like, well, why are, why are you? <laughs> like, why is <laughs> right, something right. I have to explain yes. that makes me different? And you know, halfway through doing the list, I actually um, changed my diet completely. And my husband had been vegan for eight years. And I would eat that way when I was at home because he's an incredible cook and he was cooking for us, yeah. but not when I was outside of the house. And I made the shift to do it all of the time. Um, and one thing I recognized was, oh, well, I could give up alcohol so I can do this too. And it made me yes. feel better you know, it made me feel healthier. Um, the last thing that was preventing me from doing it was my running. Cause I was afraid, like I, I bought into this myth that you need to have protein from animals to be strong. And that's actually not true. Um, so once I started noticing, Oh, I feel so much better. Like this is the right path for me. I also started recognizing, Oh, people get really weirded out when I talk about being vegan. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like it's yes. not that different from when I gave up alcohol and it was helping me to understand like, okay, I can be the change. You know, yes. I can, I can be that person who people are looking to and seeing, oh, your life seems a lot better. Like you seem a lot happier. Maybe I'll make that change too. And that could also apply to safe driving. Um, that could be a thing where people would see like, oh, you traveled to 15 different travel destinations in six years for this bucket list. And not once did you use your phone while driving? How is that possible? You know, because it's like, we're so cultured now that that's just okay. That's what we, we do it maybe surreptitiously, but I think people are still doing it. It is actually possible to live your life where you're going to insist that you stop like that you park your car before you take a phone call. Like it is possible to go to a rest stop and make that choice. It's going to maybe take a few extra minutes, but it's okay because you're just keeping that commitment to yourself. Like this is what I value. I think that's so uh, such a great way to connect all of that. Just this conscious decision that I get to choose. And if I know that there's a better way, even if it's against the grain, even if it's not something that anyone else understands, it's my own personal decision for me to show up for myself in the best way possible. And so just the way that you articulated that connecting all of those things from drinking to veganism, to not driving with your cell phone in your hand and, or not being distracted while driving is such a huge overarching, wonderful message to connect to. And it's so relatable. And I, I, I want to circle back to the book and to the list because you said something 
that I think uh, we brushed over, but you said that kind of not drinking freed up time before you knew it, before you found the list. And that kind of prepared you again, kind of back to that readiness moment of like, okay, now you found the list and now you've found yourself sober and having free time to be able to put your best foot forward to tackle some of these adventures or challenges. And without knowing again, without knowing what's the reason for this, other than the reason that I've been able to isolate in my decision-making process, it opened up this big expanded world and this expanded idea that you were able to connect to that too. And, and I am also a potential junkie and I am addicted to the idea that like, if someone's living a better way or a happier life, I want some of that. Like, what are you doing then? I need to know all of this. And so when you found the list and you found yourself with this time, I'm sure that made your decision much easier to be like, oh, I can, I can totally do this. I can totally tackle this in the way that I want and use it for this greater purpose and mission and my activism that has now become so much bigger. I had already devoted myself to something bigger than me. Mm-hmm. I had already been an activist for a couple of years. Um, I had already stepped outside of my comfort zone to do that. Um, been willing to write about my experience in big national places. Um, been willing to meet other people and other families who had experienced the same kind of thing. A lot of the time they were parents mm-hmm. and it was their children. And so once I started having that experience where I was in a position where I was meeting them, you know, I really just, that's when it was becoming clear to me, like, oh, oh, there's a reason that I'm a writer and this happened in my family. Mm. You know, like, like I, I have connections they don't have. I I can lift their voice up. Like there's a reason why I switched from fine arts to journalism when I was in college. And what really appealed to me about it was that I wanted to be a voice for the voiceless. I mean, at that time in my life, it was about depression and it was about wanting to write about mental health Mm -hmm. and removing stigma from it. But now it could be about safe driving. And, you know, I don't know how different those causes are. I really don't because I think I think we're living in this weird time right now in our society where so many of us are sort of on autopilot, mm-hmm. like we're sort of half asleep and it's not some, some weird, like um, uh, it's not like a spiritual deficit that exists inside of people. It's just the freaking phones, you know, it's just, we're connected all the time, but connected, not in a real way. It's like a slot machine sometimes, right? Because it's like there's the promise of connection in this thing that we all have that we all have to check, but yeah. it doesn't always work out. <laughs> like sometimes you lose all your money. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, great. You don't great. hit the jackpot every time. And the truth is we're not meant to be um, objects and we're not meant to be slaves to anything. You know, we're meant to live our own individual lives and My dad knew that in 1978, and I think there was just something about me going through this list and being like, okay, visit New Orleans, or, you know, like, oh, what do I think he wanted to do there? He probably wanted to go to Jazz Fest, Um, visit San Diego. What would he have wanted to do there? Oh, probably he would have checked off, go sailing by myself. Like, I'm, I'm doing on this list the dreams of a man who lived in a much simpler time. Yes. And a much yes. more innocent time and pursuing things that don't require a phone. Mm-hmm. So I, already I'm like breaking out of a mold 
by doing that. And, and you're right. Like the fact that I had given up drinking completely, the fact that I had become a marathon runner, and now I was also an activist. I'm already taking steps toward doing things that are part of a unique life path and Mm -hmm. deciding I don't care so much that I'm not fitting into that mold anymore. You were connecting so deeply with yourself and in that way, also connecting to your father in a way that maybe maybe you didn't anticipate. I'm not sure. I don't want to to speak for you, but um, it sounds a lot like as you're discovering these things about yourself, you're really connecting with him in a way of like, what would he want to do here? And that, I think that's so interesting. It affected how I saw sexism too, in a big way. I was always, like you said, I was always in this mindset of what would he want to do here? And that meant I'm now almost like, letting this 1978 man, 29 year old man's mentality live behind my eyes. And I'm now seeing my exchanges with people as a 40 year old woman at that time, totally differently, mm-hmm. you know, like, Oh, well, why can't I pose in a tuxedo? Like one of the list items was own a black tux. Like I'm going to do it my way. There's nothing weird about that, you know? And like, that's the only one that comes to my mind right now. That was, that was, you know, definitively masculine, (laughs) but it definitely did open my eyes to, well, why do we dress the way we do? And like, what does that even mean? And, um, by the end of the list, not to like spoil the story, but by the end of the list, I was training for triathlons because I had checked off swim the width of a river, you know, and I had checked off run 10 miles straight. And I ended up actually during the list, uh, riding like in this bicycle race through the desert in Arizona for like 56 miles. So I thought, well, that's basically half an Ironman, <laughs> you know, like I just have to do it all one day. Yeah. And then I just started training for all of those things during the pandemic because I suddenly had so much extra time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started raising money for girls on the run, which was an organization um, I really believed in and still believe in. Um, and I still have that as my goal. I've done two half Ironman races now. I haven't finished one yet because something happens every time, <laughs> sure. but I'm going to, I'm going to finish one. And you know, would I be doing something called an Ironman if I hadn't um, done this first, if I hadn't pursued um, the ideas that this man had in 1978? One thing I started recognizing halfway through doing the list, because that was when I actually got laid off from my job that I had had for seven years. And in normal times, I would have been devastated by that. I would have been like, oh my God, because that was my identity, you know, like, when you work for a magazine and you're in like um, a production position, like I was, you have to stay there until like 10 o'clock, sometimes midnight, you know, several times a month. It was cutting into my actual life outside mm-hmm. of work, but I didn't care because I was so passionate about it. Yeah. Um, and it was who I was. And if I, that had happened without doing the list project at the same time, I would have probably sunk into a deep depression because it would just be like, I lost who I am. But because I had just found the list and I had been doing it for a year and I now had an agent and I was writing a book about it and said, I was really happy because mm-hmm. now I had been freed from something Yes, and I had time to finally actually write the book now because our schedule had really picked up that winter and I was supposed to be writing my first 100 pages and I had gotten none of them done because mm-hmm. that was taking priority. You know, I had enough years of doing this that I could get freelance work and I could still make ends meet the same, like I could still make the same amount as I was before. Um, but I would never have taken that leap to do that because it would have meant even though I needed to, but it would have meant leaving this part of me behind that I thought 
I was. Yes. So what, what actually started happening a lot of the time with the list was I was gradually letting go of and losing so many things, just so many things I, I clung to um, that I didn't need. Yes. And and every time it would happen, I would just, my first thoughts would be, oh my God, I'm becoming this like crazy dreamer <laughs> like my dad was. And this life I've built is now falling apart. And that's, I'm just going to lose everything. Like, like you're I, throwing it all away. You can't. All away. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know who I am anymore because I'm a copier of good housekeeping. Like I would tell people that with so much pride all the time. And eventually what I started realizing was, no, I'm not those things. Like those are things I was doing, mm-hmm. but they're not who I am. And I think it's like people don't want to do that. Like they don't want to risk letting go of things they've built. Oh yeah. To find That's anything. Scary. But you have to though. Like even some relationships I had, you know, like just certain things I clung to because they represented a certain thing to me. Mm-hmm. I had to be willing to just say, okay, you know, just whatever, take it, whatever I have to let go of. It's almost like, so let's say the mission of doing the list is like you're, you're hiking, right? And sometimes your pack gets too heavy and you have to just leave something behind because it's either leave it behind or never get to the destination. Right. And that's sort of what it started becoming for me. And I think that really is when, when in my subtitle of the book, How Living My Dad's Dream Set Me Free, I really think that's what that's about is not only did I have actual trappings of my life that weren't really right for me anymore, I also had beliefs that were never right. Oh, yeah. I had ideas about who I was and what I could accomplish and what I could do that or incorrect. I mean, I had this, I had this concept that I had to be afraid of myself because I had depression. You know, I had this, this self-concept that I was a gentle, shy, reserved person because that was sort of what I was conditioned as growing up. And yeah, I am, I do like to be a kind person, but I'm also, it turns out pretty good at public speaking. And, and my voice when I write um, is one of the best parts of me. So mm-hmm. it, I feel like it would be such a shame if I kept living that way and hiding my voice because I thought that wasn't who I was supposed to be. Because someone somewhere along the line at some stage of your life said something that felt that way or maybe said it directly and you held on to that. And in this moment and in this way, you were letting go of those things and it was so liberating. Scary, probably. It's always scary to make change, but in my experience, I found that when I'm willing to be open to what happens when I make that change, I feel free, like you said in your in your subtitle, and so liberated and so much more confident in in myself. And it's almost like the snowball that's like picking up snow and rolling down the hill and becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, if you're if you're able to be brave enough and courageous enough to kind of trust that instinct and trust the signs and take the steps necessary to do it. Well, I think it's that collaboration that I was talking about. I mean, we're not here alone. There's something else helping us and guiding us. And like you said, you can find it all around you. Mm -hmm. And if you believe that, you're going to find it. Um, and, And also, you have to understand that there's this inner compass that is also always showing you where to go. Um, And that when you make choices that are guided by that, it feels different. Yes. So you have to go by that feeling. I mean, how many, like how many choices do we make in our lives 
not really knowing a whole lot about whatever it is we're about to do, but purely because this feels right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and those always end up being the right thing. Yeah. Like there's a reason for that. It's when we're resistant that we often make a, a bad, that not bad, like from a judgmental standpoint, but like a choice that doesn't end up panning out the way we hope. Um, yeah, it's a heart versus head thing. Yeah. Um, at some point I started seeing hearts every day and I started connecting that with this idea that, uh, as long as I was making choices that felt right for my heart, I was headed in the right direction. Yes. And that my dad was going to send me these hearts to let me know. So I might've just made a choice that was really out of character for me. And that was really scary. And that made me like worry about what was going to happen. But if I saw that heart, I would think, oh, no, 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 that was, this was list me. Like, this is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And it was a very different way to live because, you know, I used to be the same way. I was very in my head and very like, okay, well, if I can't figure this out right now, like how I think this is going to go, then I probably shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as, as I'm sure you've discovered too, like some of the best things we do in our lives, we don't have all the information when we start. Or this preconceived idea of what it's supposed to look like or the limitations that we've been hanging on to that we picked up somewhere along the way. Um, I I am curious about the list. Maybe I just haven't gotten there yet, but did you tackle (laughs) these in order or did you just pick them as you saw fit into what was happening in your life? Yeah, I I, first I did the running one because I was already signed up for the marathon. And then um, I also did the get my picture in a national magazine that was early because I was working for one and they wanted to publish an article that I wrote about doing the list. Um, And then we were going to go to New Mexico for our one year wedding anniversary. So I thought, oh, well, that's a perfect place to check off ride a horse fast. So at first it was like things were coming together very organically. Um, And then I started recognizing, okay, like I had given myself a four year deadline because the first list item said he hoped to live until the year 2020. So that helped me to organize it better. And then I started thinking, okay, I have to figure out where where are we most likely to travel? And I'm thinking about the finances too, of course. So I'm having to like space things out to make sure I can afford all of it. Um, So yeah, I guess about the end of year one, I got out my Google calendar and I just (laughs) just started mapping things out and figuring out where, where does it make sense for me to do skydiving. Well, no, I had actually already done that at that point, but like, where does it make sense for me to do sailing? Where does it make sense for me to go to the Super Bowl? Okay. We'll probably do that near the end. Cause that's going to be expensive. You know, it was, mm-hmm. it was stuff like that. And I still sort of live that way. Like sometimes I'll plan something with someone and we don't have it set in stone yet, but I'll still put it on the calendar for when I think it's going to happen mm-hmm. because I'm living um, in such a future oriented way all the time of you know, I don't ever think like, oh, well, this probably won't happen. Like that that's not part of my vocabulary anymore. It's right. we'll figure it out. Yes. A hundred percent. I always say I sign up for things and then I figure out how to do them when I like already know I'm going to do them. Sometimes I put things on the calendar that I haven't had confirmation of, or that I'm not sure are going to happen, but I am sure they're going to happen, or at least I'm going yep. to plan that they are. And that's how that works. So I think that's really cool that you kind of again, we're just so open to what was happening and where, where does this make the most sense and allowing it to flow versus forcing it. Did you find that there were any items on the list that your dad did cross off before? Yeah. He checked off five 
Um, So he checked off, um, go to a World Series game, much to my husband's disappointment because he's a big baseball fan. (laughs) Um, He checked off, have an impressive record collection. My dad was a singer and just really uh, passionate about music. So that made sense to me. Um, And I have half of it now. Uh, He checked off, um, be interviewed on the radio, um, help my parents enjoy their retirement and do a comedy monologue. Very cool. And then the one he marked as having failed was uh, pay my dad back a thousand dollars plus interest. Oh, oh, yeah. So I mean, the list items, as much as they were opening me up to the possibilities of who I was supposed to be and what I could do and a new way of living, right? Because that's sort of what I've developed here. They also were helping me to understand my dad better as a young man. I mean, because he wrote this before he was even a father, or he had just become a father. So I'm getting to meet him at that stage in his life and um, understand that person better. And, you know, I think that's why as I proceeded through the list and I'm making this conscious choice to honor this person I love all the time who taught me so many things, I'm now able to let go of any lingering resentments I had with him and forgive him for things. And it was so crucial that I did that because if I couldn't do that, then I think probably um, the trauma reaction I had to his death, like that was just going to be in me forever. Like I would be, I would remain this scared person of living on the edge or, you know, or doing, doing things outside of the box because what if it happened to me too? Right. What I hear woven throughout this entire conversation is that it's bigger than you. There's something bigger guiding you if you're open to it. And that being open to it is crucial for being able to step outside of your comfort zone and really trust yourself and try new things and learn things about yourself that you didn't know and let go of things that you thought you knew and live life to its fullest and the most potential that you have based on you and what's important to you. And that this list really, the story is so beautiful and it has such a great mission and your, your activism tied to it, but that really this list was just something that lifted the veil for you and said, Hey, you know, you were already doing some of these things, but now being able to like really feel them and, and back to that purpose conversation, like connecting that to you in a very deep, in a very deep way. And I mean, it certainly affected my marriage too. Oh yeah. Because I was afraid he would leave. I was afraid if I did something so personal and so unique to my own life path, like, is that okay? Like, am I not making you feel dismissed or would that make you feel? Yeah. yeah. I'm supposed to be, I had just gotten married, you know, I'm supposed to be learning how to be part of a team and us doing things together. Instead, the, the, the complete opposite happened. Instead, it was him saying to me, um, oh, this is who you always were, who the person I love deep down, who was covered in all of this stuff, mm-hmm. all of this trauma and fear and, and hangups. And now you have finally gotten rid of it so that you can really live. So this is actually who I've been waiting for this whole time. Oh, you know, we talk a lot about a supportive spouse. So I'm so gra- glad that you brought that up. Almost every guest we we discuss this and the way that you just said that and the way that he shared with you that he's been waiting for you to show up is so touching and meaningful. I just, you know, that that's probably it's it, that's beyond how does he support you? When we tell ourselves as women, 
And I do think women do this a lot more than men. We're we're conditioned to do it. When we tell ourselves, I need to be this, I need to be a great mom, I need to be a great wife, you know, I need to be a great daughter, all of these things um, that we prioritize ahead of our own happiness. Right. Who are we really? You know, we're not supposed to be servants to everyone. We need to be aware of who we are uniquely on our life path because that's part of um, that relationship. That's part of why there are partners with us. They want us to find joy. They want us to find happiness. Right. Yep. They want to help us find the best version of ourselves by being the support. Greg and I just had this conversation literally right before we got on this call. He's like, it isn't my job to tell you what to do or how to do it. It's my job to help you figure out what works best for you and be supportive of that and throw ideas your way and you bounce ideas off of me. And so I think you're exactly right. We get caught up in this. This is what I'm supposed to be and forget all about ourselves. And it isn't selfish of me to have things that I pursue as a woman. And this is just so in alignment with your story. Like, there's a difference between being selfish and self-interested. Self-interested for me means that I like to be physically active and I like to do really challenging things with that. And that takes time and that might appear selfish to some, but it's actually filling my cup first so that I'm able to show up for everybody else in the best way possible. And I think that I'm the one that had the problem with that. I think I'm the one that held myself to the fact mostly that like, this is selfish of me because of something somebody said somewhere along the line and it impacted me. And then having that realization that like, this isn't selfish. This is absolutely 100% what I'm, how I should be living my life. And the example that I want to set for anyone and everyone, especially my kids and my husband and our nuclear family here about what, how to determine what's important. So I love that you brought that back up with the conversation around your husband being such a, an, a supporter of you and that that impacted your relationship, but in the best way, instead of in the way that you anticipated. Yeah. I mean, the cover of my book, I'll never forget this. There's a picture of me on the cover and I'm on the top of Eagle Rock in in Los Angeles. And there was a bench right behind me. And this, this picture was taken like 11 days before we found the list. There was a bench right behind me and it said, uh, it, it was dedicated to someone who had passed away. And it said that old, um, that old parable, it was like, uh, don't walk behind me. I may not lead. Don't walk in front of me. I may not follow just walk beside me and be my friend. And I had just gotten married. And I remember seeing that bench and thinking, oh, that was, that's the way my dad would see things. That's weird. Why is that there? You know, like the top of this cliff, there's this weird bench here that says this. But yeah, the more we talk about this, the more I feel like that's always what the list was teaching me how to do, Mm -hmm. um, how to understand that my husband and I had just joined each other's lives together, but it was not for security and it was not so that one of us could be made to feel more valuable. Like it was not for validation. It was because we're choosing to be friends. We're choosing to help guide each other and be there when we fall, you know, and when you have that in your life, when you have a love like that, and and that's not to say people have to be in relationships, you know, you can be in a wonderful relationship with yourself and have that sense of trust and faith. But when you have that, you can do anything. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And I feel like that's been the general consensus of all of our guests is that they feel that way too. In that notion of like the supportive spouses, not giving me permission, they're just being kind of my partner in, in 
my belief system, you know, that I literally can do anything and, and their belief is almost enough to help me make the, the step and take the action forward into doing that. Thank you for sharing that too. And bringing that up because we almost brushed over it and I would have been upset that I missed that because it's such an important piece. And you've spoken about him this entire time and how encouraging he was and how, uh, how much of a good sport, if that's the word that you would use, like how, <laughs> how he was like totally into doing these things with you and, and telling you, like, I've been waiting for you to get here to this version of yourself. That's amazing. That, that's not in any way saying to your listeners, like, oh, if you're not in, you know, if oh, you don't no. words, yeah, it's more, that was what I needed on my path. Yeah. Yeah. I think that everything is everyone's individual experience and it, whether it's applicable to your life or not, it isn't from a space of judgment. I always feel that way when I talk about not drinking, because I don't want anyone who does drink to feel like I think that it's horrible and you're a bad person. And we have alcohol in our house because people come over and they, they do drink and they drink and they leave it behind because they fly home the next day or whatever. And it's like, there's no judgment about the the situation with alcohol or with being with a spouse or whatever, it's literally unique to your being and your experience as a human. I feel like if everyone was more accepting of just that one topic that we could probably riff on all day long, uh, we, we would be so much more evolved as a, as a species and as a society, (laughs) this, this idea that like, let's stop judging and, and just be open to the idea that like people are inherently good and have and experience all of their own that they are doing the best that they can every day with what they have and what they know. Like, yeah. And as, as long as you continue to do things just because they're the right thing for you, I think you're going to be okay. I mean, you know, I, and it never ends. I mean, like we don't have children. And sometimes I feel like, oh, people are making an assessment of me because I don't have them. And, and the reality is that I'm great with kids and I love kids, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, just because we come up with these ideas about who people are because they're not doing the norm. It doesn't mean that they're actually accurate. Right. I feel very connected to you. I have been honored to follow your journey. It's been a privilege to see how this is, how this has come together. And I can't wait to finish the book. Um, because everything that I've read so much is like page Turner, page Turner, like can't put it down. And then, then I do eventually put it down and then I get, you know, bogged down with all of the yeah. million other things like with everybody life. else in life, right? Like well, it should feel an life. escape, feel like an escape when you read it anyway. And it does. And it's so well written and so beautifully articulated. And now that I have had the opportunity to speak with you today, or we have before Greg had to bolt out of here, I feel like I I connect to it so much more because it's it's again, I, I just haven't finished yet, but like there's just so much depth to the 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 whole lesson and the whole story and the whole mission that I just maybe hadn't gotten to or, or wasn't aware of yet. So thank you so much for sharing you sharing your story. And also like some of the other things that we talked about today, I I really appreciate it. And I really value your, your time and, and all of your knowledge and all of your mindset that you've shared. So thank you. Thank you. And, you know, as far as the activism goes, I don't even think of myself really as a, as an activist that way anymore. Because at some point, it, you'll and you'll see this in the story, at some point it shifted for me from helping people with how they drove to helping people with how they live. Oh, yes. Like it just, that it became something else for me. And just that is something how I feel now. Like almost, I don't want to use the word bigger and be misconstrued, but like just this almost higher, more robust version of not one, just not one topic, but mm-hmm. 
all, all of it. Yeah, that's great. Um, where can we find more about you and how can we support uh, you? How can we support the the mission that you're on to spread awareness around that activism piece? What, Where can we find you? Um, I am on uh, bylaracarney.com. That's my website. If you want to go there and uh, you can see all my clips on there, you can buy the book there and just learn more about what I've been doing. Um, and I'm also, uh, my father's list on Instagram. I will link all of those in the show notes. Thank um, you. I have and some exciting stuff coming up soon. So are, are you able to share? No, not this, yet. okay. But so we have to go <laughs> follow and stay tuned for more in that yeah. way then. Okay. Well, I, uh, I, again, very much appreciate your time. I appreciate you sharing and I'm so happy that we were able to like meet in this way face to face after I feel like I've known you all for the Aww. last couple of years watching everything. So thank you. Thank you. Hey, yo, congratulations on investing into yourself and your growth. I hope you found this episode to be beneficial and feel proud of yourself for showing up. If you found this episode helpful, please consider sharing with someone else who may benefit from it too. I'd love to hear from you. So hit me up on all socials at Cameo Elise Braun. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow for new episodes and updates. Also, it's super important to mention, this is intended for entertainment and education through experience. None of it is fully known to be fact and is not a replacement for professional advice from a therapist or doctor. Thank you so much for being here with me. And be sure to thank yourself for showing up. <laughs>